There's an outline there. Hopefully you've got one of those. This is uh, the third talk in our series, thinking about what the death of the Lord Jesus means. No, not just the death, the crucifixion of Jesus. In our first talk, we saw that the cross of Jesus was not a green hill far away. It was not a sentimental kind of concept, a vague religious notion. But the cross of the Lord Jesus is a brutal catastrophe of disfigured humanity, the Lord of glory, skewered like a human kebab. And this offensive monstrosity of a crucified Messiah, the Bible says, is the centre of God's revelation of who he is and his salvation of his people. The cross is the display of what God is like. The cross is why the Lord Jesus came. In our second talk last Sunday, we explored the nature of our slavery, our slavery to sin. We saw that sin was permanent. We saw that it was personal. And we saw that it was powerful. And today I hope to tie some of those concepts that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks together as we consider the background of the cross. Now, I came up with the title, Background, and I know it's not the most exciting of titles, but we are going to look at one of the most, if not the most significant passage in the Old Testament. Now, if you've been around church for a little while, you might know that the Old Testament is the background to the New Testament, but it might as well be the boring background because often the Old Testament is thought of as just a source of further information. You know, for those uh, especially keen, intelligent types who like reading strange literature, well, there you can go to the Old Testament. But you might think, well, no, the Old Testament is more important than that. It's, it, it's, it's a helpful prelude. It's, in fact, the preparation. It's a little like, you know, the rocket boosters on a rocket ship. What do the boosters do? They get the ship off, up into orbit, and then they kind of peel away and have no value. Well, that's not what the Old Testament is like. It's not the necessary preparation in order to get to the good bit. No, the Old Testament and an understanding of the Old Testament is the very grounds for which we come to understand what is going on as this man hangs on a cross. I don't know if you've ever worked with epoxy glue. Put your hand up if you work with epoxy glue. I know that some of us... How does it generally come? How's it in, in, in two parts? And what do you do with those two parts? And what happens once you mix them? They set. That's fantastic. Didn't know, Sue, that you uh, used epoxy. That is great. That's more what the Old Testament is like in its relationship to the New Testament. You need both of these parts, and when they come together, they set rock hard, and clarity, understanding, comprehension is found because the Old Testament is not this discarded bit, and the cross of the Lord Jesus is not something that was new. It was not novel. But the cross of the Lord Jesus was the very apex and climax. 
the fulfilment of what God had started long ago. I don't know if you remember that Telstra ad about 10 years. This is dad driving in the car with his son, and his son asks him, Dad, why did they build the Great Wall of China? You remember that ad? And what does the dad say? Not wanting to uh, you know, appear ignorant. Yeah, to keep the rabbits out, son. There's a question in the Old Testament, and it's imagined in a similar way. It's on a journey, and a son asks his dad this question. You can see it on the outline. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. It says, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord of our God has commanded you, tell him, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You see what gives explanation to what it is to be in Israel, to be an Israelite? What it is to live all the calendar and celebrations and clothes and song and food? Their whole culture can be summarised in this, their whole reason finds its summary in just one event. Dad, why do we live the way we do, son? It's because God rescued us from Egypt. If you want to turn to the book of Exodus, we're going to see this defining moment. For the nation of Israel, this is like Anzac Day and Australia Day, our Indigenous heritage all coming together This is a pivotal moment for the nation of Israel because as we open up in the book of Exodus, we see that the nation of Israel is in a situation. You might remember from the book of Genesis, the very book before that, God has promised to bless Abraham and his descendants and that promise has come in part to fulfilment because they were just a large family, but now they have become a nation, but they exist within another nation, the nation of Egypt. Have a look there in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly, exceedingly numerous, so the land was filled with them. This is Israel now in Egypt. But as great as that is for Israel, that's not how the Egyptians see it and that's not how Pharaoh sees it. Because in Egypt, you might go close to actually believing that Pharaoh was a god. I mean, he, thought, he certainly thought he was. Others thought he was. The scale and power of his army and the scale and magnificence of his palace and empire kind of gave you the impression that he was a a God. And now this nation of Israel have become a cog in Pharaoh's machine of empire. Egypt has become for Israel not a land of blessing, but it's become an anti-Eden. Israel now contained. They are now enslaved In this city, they are a long way from a garden and their 
ruled by this alternate God, this one who has a pretense of being the divine. He is powerful and he is evil and he is oppressing God's people in slavery. But Joseph's brothers, when they went to Egypt, they went there because they first sought refuge, but this refuge has become a threat and the threat now has become a slave master and he is a brutal slave master. Have a look there at Exodus chapter 1 verse 14. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians what? Use them ruthlessly. This is the nature of what it is to live with someone pretending to be God. Pharaoh thought himself divine. And in order to fulfill his fantasy, he oppressed God's people. And so God appears to Moses, if you flick over there to chapter 3, to announce that he will rescue, he will rescue his people. And this begins this struggle in chapters 4 to 11 between Moses and Pharaoh, a process as we see those chapters unfold of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And here we just see how ridiculous it is for Pharaoh to set himself up against God's people because God is the one who's in control. In fact, Pharaoh can't even control his own thoughts and hearts, which mocks Pharaoh and his idolatrous pretension to deity. His heart continues to be hardened as the plagues are brought before him. The objective reality of God's power over creation is brought before his very eyes, but he still refuses to let God's people go. He still thinks that he is in charge. And so in those plagues, the very things that he and the people of Egypt had worshipped God, shows them. God in the plagues is mocking how ridiculous it is to worship a river as a source of life. The Egyptians worshipped or deified the god Happy or Happy, which was a source. It was seen as a source of Egypt's life. But the source of Egypt's life in one of those plagues is turned into blood and brings death. The sun, which was deified in the god Amon Ray, is humiliated in the plague of darkness. Do you see what God is doing? He's displaying to Israel, and he's displaying to Egypt, and he's showing to Pharaoh that he is God, and Pharaoh is not. And this is the very judgment upon him, because his heart is increasingly hardened to God. Pharaoh has attempted to create his own Eden, but now in these 10 plagues in chapters 11 to chapters 4 to 11 we see that Pharaoh's Eden is uncreated before him. His perfect world with these plagues is unravelling but so hard is his heart so bent in opposition to God there's no movement from him and it culminates his rebellion in this final plague the death of Egypt's firstborn and the start of 
the Passover. We're up to point D under point two, the Passover meal. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 12. Why don't you turn to chapter 12, because this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. The term Passover is not one of those complicated terms that you need to know a lot about. It just means to pass over. And here in the Passover is we see God passing over through the agent of his angel, God passing over his people in judgment at the benefit of a substitute. This is God rescuing his people. The Passover is the start of their rescue out of Egypt. And the Passover meal anticipates this. And there's an incredible amount of detail there, as you can see in chapter 12. At the centre of this meal, we might say the hero of this meal, is not microherbs, but a slaughtered lamb. You see there in verse 3, it's something that the whole family is to participate in this meal. And it doesn't matter, verse 4, if you are rich or poor, because the key to this meal is everyone in Israel sharing in the meal of a slaughtered lamb and also the application of the blood of that lamb upon the door frames. The meal which is provided by the lamb is intended to give meaning. They don't need a meal. The blood would have, we assume, been sufficient. But God now slows Israel down to consider what he is doing. He institutes this meal such that every part of this meal has a meaning and it's a meaning such that they would remember. They would remember. And that's why the details are important. It's not any lamb, you'll see there, but it's a special lamb. It's a perfect lamb, a male lamb without blemish, chosen at just the right time. It's not a lamb stew that they're having. The lamb isn't cut up to pieces such that the visual reality of the lamb's contribution is reduced to some nice tender bits. No, the lamb slaughtered is placed in its wholeness before the family such that everyone can see what it has cost, this lamb. And it's not raw. All signs of life are extinguished. And this meal, and it's a meal that looks, sorry, forward to what God is going to do. And what's he going to do? Have a look there in verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood of the slaughtered lamb in some way is a sacrifice. And this sacrifice of the lamb sets... God's people apart. Do you know, all the other plagues affected Egypt, but this last and final plague affects everyone. If anyone in Egypt was not to hear the word of God, and not just hear it, but do something about it in going and getting a lamb slaughtering and painting, they would have been subject to God's 
judgment. And they, in this meal, uh, are to anticipate God's rescue. That's why there in verse 11, they're told to eat it in a hurry. My mum always told me as a kid, slow down, Stuart. I'm a very fast eater. I must be Jewish. Um, Why? Why did they need to hurry up and eat? Because it wasn't about the meal. The meal was helping them remember the deliverance that God was about to show them. Salvation is near. Those who eat, eat in readiness to be delivered from the brutal slavery of the Egyptians. Those who eat are spared. But it will become, as you see there in verses 14 to 20, a meal to be remembered. Even before the event of the Exodus has happened, God is preparing his people to remember something that hasn't even happened. Such is the significance of what is about to occur for the nation of Israel. They will need to remember. But this isn't you know, simply a cognitive exercise, like you know, remembering your mobile phone. It takes, if you get a new number, if you're like me, quite a number of months. Is this what God is talking about here? Remember? No. In the meal, they are to remember, but they are to remember in the meal such that it might be a reality before them that in that meal, that it might press upon their hearts and minds and bodies what God has done for them in the past. And to recall that, to remember that, fortifies them in trust and hope for the future. God promised. His people trusted. And God accomplishes his promise. What's really significant in this Exodus story is the concept of a firstborn, we're up to point E, the firstborn son. Because in the ancient world, the firstborn son represented for a family, and think about it in agricultural terms, your firstborn son represented the hope of the family. They represented the strength and the future of the people. And that's why it's really interesting, back in the first plague, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, have a look at this. God says that Israel is his firstborn son. Israel, this nation, is the one that will inherit what God has to give. This nation is precious to God. And so when Pharaoh attacks the nation of Israel, they attack God's firstborn son. And so just as the leaders of each household were obedient in Israel and their families received the blessing of God's judgment being passed over, so those who defied God, their families received the curse. And if you look back to Exodus chapter 12, there's those chilling verses in verse 29 of Exodus 12. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. 
What right did God have to take the lives of those firstborn children? Well, a couple of things that we could say. Firstly, God is the ultimate king. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who sustains life. And he's the one who takes life. Because before God, life is not a human right. It's a gift that God gives. Secondly, what right did God have to do that? I want to ask you an even more troubling question. How, how could God let that happen to those firstborn of Egypt? But how could he let it happen to his firstborn? His firstborn son. We'll see that towards the end of the sermon. There in the judgment upon the forces of evil against God's people, in the depths of that reality, at the same time is also the salvation of God's people. It's with this final plague, it's this last straw that creates the possibility for Israel. In fact, they are driven out from the land plundering or disinheriting the Egyptians as they go. And there you might recall they are brought through the Red Sea with God's power on display in a similar way to what we recall to creation back in Genesis chapter 1. What did he do in creation? He parted the sea such that the land would be brought into being and here now he parts these seas such that the nation of Israel walk and are rescued. See what God is doing. Roger and I were joking the, uh, uh, earlier on that um, you know, whenever there's a problem with a computer or electronic device, try rebooting it. This is the common advice. This is how IT people make a living. Just reboot it. They send it in uh, many an email. This is what's occurring. There's a reboot in creation here. There's a moment here of a new creation coming out of both judgment and salvation. Because the very means of Israel's salvation is also the means of the judgment upon the forces of evil that took God's people captive. The waves, as we see later on in the book of Exodus, do come crashing down on the Egyptian army, upon their chariots. But Pharaoh is not numbered with those who are swept away. This is a remarkable moment for the nation of Israel. And for, the centru- and for centuries later, the Exodus continues to be this defining moment, even as they enter the land, the promised land, the land of Canaan. They enter it because of their exodus and they enter it through the prism of the exodus. God raises up a new Moses, Joshua, who leads what? He leads his people across another river, the River Jordan. Hundreds of years later, the prophets of the Old Testament, as they think about the nation of Israel, as they think about the new bondage that Israel is in, in Babylon, they recall 
They recall what God has done in the past to rescue, to rescue from bondage and slavery. In the book of Isaiah, a new song is sung. It's like Moses' song in chapter 15 of Exodus, but it's different this time because it's a song of a suffering servant. A song of a suffering servant who is pictured as what? In the book of Isaiah. How is this suffering servant pictured in Isaiah chapter 52, 53? As a lamb. As a lamb who was slain. Who is to deliver not just Israel, but this lamb, this suffering servant is to deliver all the nations. And there is Jesus as he comes out of the waters of baptism. As Jesus parts the waters of salvation, what does God say to him? This is my, this is my son. He is God's firstborn. Here is his one and only son. And the prophet of the New Testament, the one for which all the prophets are channeled through, this man called John the Baptist, knows the expectation of Israel, has this whole history in mind, and there he sees in the distance a man walking. And as this man walks closer to him, he sees who he is, and he calls all those around him to look at this man, and he says, Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see what's occurring when Jesus is crucified? What is occurring is a new exodus. What is occurring is not just an exodus in one time for one people, God's people of Israel, In the death of Jesus, what we have is a new exodus for every single person who would know that they are in slavery and rebellion and would trust in the blood of this slain lamb. Because in the cross of Jesus, a son dies. Just as the judgment came upon Pharaoh's son, and as judgment came on Pharaoh's son, Israel is saved, so too at the cross we have the son of a king. But this is not any king. This is God himself. This is God's son. This is his innocent son. In the death of the Lord Jesus, we have a lamb who was slain. We have a lamb who was chosen. We have a lamb who is without blemish, not physically, But this lamb is without blemish morally. This is the only lamb who has ever heard the voice of his shepherd. This is the only lamb who has followed God's law. And this lamb is slaughtered. And his blood, his shed blood, is a means for which judgment is not visited upon us. The Apostle Peter, you can see it on the screen, thinks about it in a similar way. He says, what Jesus has secured for you, in verse 18, was not done with perishable things such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed redeemed from the empty way of life handed down 
to you from your forefathers. Even there in verse 18, it's got this, I think, concept of slavery. You know, you do what you were taught to do and it's this continual cycle. But you've been rescued from this slavery, from this cycle, and it's not by gold or silver, but verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The death of Jesus is also a substitute. In the death of Jesus, a substitute is also given because it is Jesus who is visited upon It is Jesus who endures God's judgment and it is us who are shown mercy. Did you get that reading from uh, Luke chapter 23 where they're demanding Barabbas? The crowd want Barabbas to be released. The crowd want this murderer, this one to be released and the innocent one, the Lord Jesus, to die. There we see, I think, in a narrative version, the picture of substitution, that we are the guilty and Jesus, the innocent, has died on our behalf. Fourthly, we see that in the cross, evil is judged. The very means of our salvation comes because the judgment has been brought down by God. We're going to speak about this uh, in a couple of weeks, and in particular the concept of justice and God's judgment. But in the cross we see that the forces of evil are judged, the forces of evil that hold us captive. Last week we, we worked for a fair bit thinking about the slavery that sin holds us within But in the death of Jesus, it's not simply the chariots of the forces of evil that are destroyed, but death itself. Evil does not live to fight another day through the death of the Lord Jesus because every imaginable evil was thrown at the Lord Jesus. No more evil event has ever or will ever occur. And so evil has done its worst. It's been exhausted and it's been defeated at the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus also means, fifthly, that slaves are released. Guilt must be atoned for. Evil must be conquered. But when this happens, slaves are released. We could talk about that more. A new creation is made. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. An inheritance is given, like from 1 Peter, that will never perish, spoil or fade and lastly the cross is a display of God's glory. Back in Exodus chapter 14 verse 7 God explains why he's saving Israel. It's not because Israel are fantastic. It's not because Israel don't deserve his judgment. Why does God save Israel and not Egypt? He saves them to show his glory we're told in Exodus chapter 14 verse 7. And as Jesus anticipates his death, as he thinks about what he has to do on the cross, this is what Jesus says. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? As he dies, to be glorified. Because the cross of the Lord Jesus shows us most clearly who God is. He's a God who rescues. 
He's a God who shows mercy. He's a God who has delivered those who know that they are in bondage to the forces of evil. And so we need to ask ourselves, is the cross of the Lord Jesus your defining event? If your children were to ask you, Mum, Dad, if those around you were to ask you, why do we do what we do? Would the cross of the Lord Jesus be sufficient explanation? Because it's not sufficient to say, oh yes, my life aligns with the cross of the Lord Jesus. The question is, is it shaped by the cross of the Lord Jesus? Is it organised by the cross of the Lord Jesus? Is it prioritised and empowered by the cross of the Lord Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't encouraging those who would claim his name to admire the cross from a distance. What does he say to his followers, those who would come after him? He says, take up your cross and follow me. What do you remember? What do you remember? And I'll close here. In Amos chapter 2, hundreds of years after this Exodus event, God says to Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the desert. No, he didn't. This is a couple of hundred years later. The Exodus was meant to be everyone's event. It didn't matter if you weren't alive back then. It was to be your event. It was to be remembered. God was to be remembered because he had saved his people. See, they weren't there, but that old story of God's salvation, of his redemption, of his rescue from slavery had become the new story. It had become their story. And we need to ask ourselves... Has the death of the Lord Jesus, has the ultimate exodus become our story? Do we remember it? Are we shaped by it? Because I'll leave you with this. Our second reading from Exodus chapter 14 recalled this tragic and almost unbelievable moment. I talked to my kindergarten scripture kids about this and they cannot believe it. Their God rescues Israel from the clutches through these plagues of Pharaoh. And there, as they're on their way out of Egypt, a number of the Israelites come to complain to God and they say, let us go back and serve the Egyptians. Friends, we too easily will enslave ourselves. We too easily will enslave ourselves rather than knowing the freedom that the Lord Jesus gives us. What does he say to us? He says, come to me, all who are weary. The people of God were weary under the burden of slavery in Egypt. And we are weary under the burden of slavery, of sin and evil. And so we need to come. We need to come to the Lord Jesus. And we need the exodus to be our story through the death of the Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing. So please stand.